0: Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be with you this Sunday. If you're a guest, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and we have the privilege this morning of looking at the first chapter of the book of Daniel, and we're going to be looking at the first six chapters of Daniel over the next six weeks. The first six chapters of Daniel contain six different narratives or stories, and we're going to take one each week. They roughly break down to the first six chapters. So if you are planning to be with us during that time, I encourage you to read through the first six chapters of Daniel. Take a take a chapter a day, Monday through Saturday, and then you'll be ready to engage in the next chapter on Sunday and do that for the next five weeks. At this point, but uh, read through that. Read through the first six chapters of Daniel with us as we as we journey through this part of Scripture over the next month and a half. So the question might come to your mind: Why Daniel? Why the first six? chapters of Daniel in this season? Well, a couple of reasons. We live in a world gone haywire. I think you would have to have your head in the sand and your eyes off the television and out of the newspapers and off the internet to see that the moral fabric that is in our country seems to be decaying at breakneck speed. And things that were once shamefully hidden are now publicly celebrated. The previously unimaginable for some of us has become the commonplace. In a matter of a few short decades, our culture's response to Christians has gone from grudging respect to a patronizing pat on the head to marginalizing and indifference to, in our own days, some outright hostility. And some Christians are absolutely freaking out right now. No doubt things are a mess, but I wonder if people have somehow forgotten that it's never been easy to live a godly life in any culture, and that, yes, while the 1950s had a lot of things that were commendable about it, it was not on earth as it was in heaven, So many Christians can look back just a few decades ago, and you don't have to live very long, you don't have to be in your 60s or 70s to embrace this, you could be in your 20s, 30s, 40s. But so often we can look back and think it was a grander time. And while those may indeed have been good days, and the 1950s may have been the golden era of family values and a godly culture, it was the case if you were a middle-class white suburbanite. But those were hardly the glory days of family values and godly culture if you're a black family living under the vestiges of segregation in Jim Crow South. We forget that presidents were shot at and assassinated back then. Promiscuous sex and hallucinatory, hallucinatory drugs were celebrated as a path to enlightenment. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of *Sergeant Pepper*. That album was made on LSD (laughs) by the Beatles. And worse yet, some people wore leisure suits (laughs) in public and were proud of it. So let's not think, brothers and sisters, that we have it so bad now. I hear it was pretty rough in the first century from what I read in the New Testament. And I hear that you can actually get killed for being a Christian in some places. We've got it pretty easy compared to many who are attempting to live for Jesus in other parts of the world. We might be written off as ignorant or narrow-minded, and we might face some pushback and discrimination. But you know what? It's not illegal to pray. We can own a Bible. We can talk about Jesus publicly. We might lose our job. We might lose some friends. But I don't think we're going to lose our heads. And this is why Daniel is so important for us. Because he had it far worse. Judah's king and kingdom had been conquered. These are low, low days for the people of Israel. Verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. took it over. Israel conquered. What you see in verse 1 is defeat, and what you see in verse 2 is deportation as Nebuchadnezzar begins gathering Israel's finest and bringing them into Babylon. So Babylon was far more evil than the current United States, and if if Daniel could be faithful in those contexts, we can most certainly be faithful in ours. And what's interesting about this chapter is that it begins in sadness and it ends in success. Did you see that as we read it? It begins in sadness with defeat and deportation and it ends with verses 17 through 21 as Daniel and his three friends ascend into power in Babylon. And verse 20 says, "...and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better." than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You get defeat and deportation in the first couple of verses, and then you get this ascension to power and influence at the end of the chapter. The question is, how did that happen? How did that happen? How does it happen that you have this incredible sadness in the beginning of the chapter and this apparent success at the end of the chapter? And as we journey through this chapter this morning, we're going to see how we too can remain faithful to our God in a world that is increasingly unfaithful to Him. It's possible, brothers and sisters, it's possible to live in a culture that is toxic to faith and not only survive, but thrive to prosper. And so this morning, I want us to see three ways to thrive in Babylon. Here's the first one be confident in God. You want to thrive, be confident in God. You know what? From Daniel's perspective, it was God who gave Babylon the victory, not Babylon. It was God who turned the holy things in the temple over to Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who allowed them to be placed in the treasure house of a pagan god. It was God who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to get away with mocking the God of Israel as an inferior and defeated foe. So don't miss this. God is involved. Look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17. And for these four youths, God gave them learning. Brothers and sisters, God's at work here. God is at work here. So from Daniel's perspective, it was God who is behind all of this. It is God who is judging his people and sending them into an exile for a greater redemptive purpose, which we will see as the book unfolds. But make no mistake, God is involved in everything in this chapter. Here's what commentator Ian Duguid says about this. He says, During the hardest moments of life, things often seem out of control. Our fate may sometimes seem to lie in the hands of hostile people or in the outworking of impersonal forces of one kind or another. Yet the reality is that every For every experience in this world, from the apparently coincidental at one end of the spectrum to the determined acts of wicked men and women at the other end, all of this lies under the control of our sovereign God. The sparrow does not fall to the ground without his permission, which demonstrates that even the most trivial events are within his view. At the other extreme, though, even the most wicked act of all time, the crucifixion of Jesus, according to Acts 4, was the outworking of God's predetermined purpose. No sinful act ever catches God by surprise or thwarts his sovereign will. Everything that we experience in life, no matter how difficult or apparently meaningless it may seem, is God's purpose for us. For believers in Christ, each circumstance is the Lord's means of furthering his sanctifying goals. He has not abandoned us or forgotten us. On the contrary, he will walk through these trials and preserve us through them by his grace. And you could put that quote in the mouth of Daniel. Because he believed it deeply. He was confident in God. He knew that even though he was under, at least his people of Israel were under the judgment of God as a result of their sin and being exiled into a foreign land, nevertheless, he was confident that God had good in mind and was, would be committed to redeeming his people. You know, we just need to ask sometimes the question, how, real, how big is our God? How big is our God? Think about it. God has promised to work all things together, all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's not to say that everything happens in and of itself is good. It isn't. But it is to say that nothing is beyond his ability to redeem or overcome for his good purposes. He took a damnable Friday and made it a good Friday. The crucifixion of Jesus was the greatest act of injustice and triumph of evil that the world has ever seen. And yet today, this morning, we gather to celebrate it because when Sunday came, everything changed. We have a God, brothers and sisters, who allowed all but one of the apostles to be martyred. It must have looked like a devastating setback at the time to the Christian movement, to the movement that Jesus was inaugurating. Yet the blood of the martyrs turned into the seed of the church, and as always happens, Satan's seeming victory was nothing more than another step toward his ultimate defeat. Nothing has changed, brothers and sisters. Our God is still at work even when it looks as if all is about to be lost. He's never surprised. He's never overmatched. Consider how bleak things looked in China when overrun by atheistic communism. This was just a few decades ago and going back several hundred years. Nevertheless, it looked as if the bad guys had won. Missionaries were kicked out. Christians were harshly persecuted. The gospel was forced underground and seemingly silenced. Western Christians began to wring their hands, worried that the menacing red tide of communism was going to spread across the globe. But when Mao Zedong and his allies, what they meant for evil, God used for good. Eventually, the spiritual emptiness of atheistic communism was exposed. And in the meantime, the gospel that had appeared to be silenced was in reality flourishing in a vibrant underground house church movement that far exceeded anything found in the good old days when China was open to Western missionaries. It's still the same. The increasing moral and cultural decay of our society is not something that God is unprepared for. It's not beyond his power to redeem. He has a plan, and it's not going to be thwarted. You know what? In the midst of cultural chaos, we need to be confident in God because God is in control of who is in control. God is always in control of who is in control. So that's the first way we thrive, is we don't get shaken to the core, unnerved, wring our hands, freak out, we rest, we be still and know that he is God and that he will be exalted among the nations and he will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46.10. Undoubtedly going to happen. So cease striving. Know he is God. Number two, be conscious of God. Be conscious of God. Not just be confident in God, but be conscious of him. Notice the way this chapter begins. The chapter begins with following the deportation and bringing Daniel and his friends into the king's house, so to speak. They receive this command, verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, they were educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now in this passage, we're basically told how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his men planned to brainwash the nobility of Jerusalem. This passage contains for us the plan for indoctrinating young, brilliant Israelites into a false worldview and to repatriate them, that is to make them new citizens of a new culture and a new nation that thinks the way that culture thinks. This is Nebuchadnezzar's reprogramming strategy according to Babylon. And we can learn a lot about the way a worldly culture tries to reprogram us as image bearers of God. So let me point out the 4th I'm going to expose the fourfold strategy here that Nebuchadnezzar uses to brainwash Daniel and his three friends. And youth, pay particularly attention because this sermon has a direct application to you. If you're in your teenage years or youngers right now, you're Daniel's age. Daniel's at best an old teenager here. He's, not, he's definitely not in his 20s yet. He's young, could be as young as 13 or 14 years old, and he's being brought with his three friends into a completely foreign environment. They've left their home, they've left their families, they've left their churches, their, their, their home in Israel, their worship, what they were familiar with, and they're being brought in to the University of Babylon. They're leaving father and mother, they're going off into a secular world, And this is the brainwashing strategy. Number one, isolation. Isolation. Remove you from your family and your home, your weekly worship, your sacrificial system, your reading and hearing of God's word. Get you out of Israel and put you isolated in the courts of the king of Babylon under his tutelage, under his oversight. Hearing what he wants you to hear. Reading what he wants you to read. Learning what he wants you to learn. Unlearning what he wants you to unlearn. Number two, indoctrination. Language and literature of the Chaldeans. Learning the literature of Babylon. Teaching them a new worldview. Making them learn to think like Babylonians and not like Israelites. Isolation, indoctrination. Teaching, 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 teaching. Teaching is the way that people get brainwashed. It's not just in college and university settings. It's in media. It's on Instagram. It's on Twitter. It's on Facebook. It's on YouTube. It's anywhere somebody is advocating an idea, a position, passionately, articulately, seeking to change the way you think about things and embrace their view of the good life. It's indoctrination. Isolation, indoctrination. Third, infatuation. They want to get at your affections too. Not just your head, but your heart. They want to instill in you a dependence upon material comfort. Notice what the king is doing here. Verse 5, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They're trying to get, make them happy, make it a good experience, make it something they enjoy and want to keep coming back to. Man, I really like that food. Man, I really, they, they have great wine. It's good, it's fun, it's a great environment to learn. It's, it's kind of busy and buzzing and exciting in Babylon. We like it. Kind of getting affirmed. You know, we got this new opportunity. And fourthly, isolation, indoctrination, infatuation, identification. Orient your identity toward a new name. Verse six. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the units gave them names, Babylonian names. See if we can. If somebody can get you to identify yourself by something other. Then what the Bible calls you to identify yourself by, they've won your allegiance. Think about that. Is that not happening in our day? People identify themselves by their lifestyles, by their allegiances, by what they want to give their heart and life to. This is who I am because they've embraced a doctrine and been infatuated with it. Isolation, indoctrination, infatuation, and identification are happening all the time, 24-7 in our culture, nonstop. It's Babylonians. It's as old as Babylon. This is nothing new. This is the reprogramming strategy that Satan, that unbelieving systems have used for years to advocate for their views. It's impossible not to. So the goal of all this is to obliterate their memory of the Lord, Daniel and his three friends, they have no more memory of the Lord because now they have all these new experiences to associate with, reeducate their minds to his way of thinking, instill in them a sense that all the good things of life come from the world around us and from the satisfaction of the desires of our own flesh. And so that's the goal. But notice, even in the midst of this reprogramming strategy, Daniel and his friends remain conscious of God. They remain conscious of God, because they understand how we think determines how we live, and in the midst of all their learning, they didn't reject their worldview. And'll we'll get to, and we see that in verse eight, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. So he's, he's submitting himself to having his name changed. He's submitting himself to learning the ways of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. He's learning the literature, he's, but he's not going all the way. He's not embracing everything. We'll get to that here in a minute. But I just want to pause here for just a second and make an application to us as parents and older Christians here. And I want to ask you this question. What grows a young person with this kind of resolve? This is intense pressure to conform, is it not? He's a young man. He's getting treated like a rock star. All the people who are in the higher parts of society are doing nothing but telling him how great he is and how we've got plans for you, man. Just listen to us. We're going to take you to the top. And he's listening to that, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old, I mean that's everything that a young person wants, to have the esteem of the elite, to have someone who's important validate them, to say, "I love you. I think you're great. I think you're going to be awesome. Let me show you how to get there. Isolate, indoctrinate, infatuate, identify. What kind of per- what, what, what grows the kind of person? I'll tell you what, childhood often holds the key. How did Daniel and his his three friends grow up? Who was king in those days, before even Jehoiakim was king? Josiah. Josiah. These four privileged youths spent their formative years growing up under King Josiah. The great religious reformer of Judah... He's one of the greatest kings in the history of the Bible. He repaired the temple. He recovered the law. He called for repentance. He led reforms. He returned God's word to the center of Israel's life. He deposed ungodly priests. He restored the celebration of the Passover. That kind of resolve that we see in Daniel and his three friends came from the rich, fertile soil of a childhood under a great and godly king. People of Resolve are fashioned, and they're fashioned in the womb of healthy commu- religious community that loves God and worships Him. The application for us today is they're fostered in the environments of healthy churches and healthy Christian families. That's where they come from. They're fashioned. They're, not, they're made. They don't simply appear out of nowhere, which prompts us to ask, what kind of young people are we raising in our homes, in our churches. Deuteronomy 6 gives us the way forward, parents. Modeling and instructing. We live out what we say. We understand that more is caught than taught. And so we emphasize the importance of instruction and modeling a godly life. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we teach our children to do likewise, and we seek to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I think a good, healthy dose of repentance is in order for most of the church in the Western world when it comes to the pitiful job we've done at passing on the faith to the next generation. We should be humbled before the new pagan pluralistic situation we find ourselves in. I'm not saying it's completely the church's fault, but we have some to blame in it. Just as was true for the exiles who were going to Babylon, this situation is due in large part, in some part at least, to our own failings. The church did not lose its position of privilege simply because of evil enemies of the faith. We lost our position as part of God's judgment on our pride, hypocrisy, love for power, prejudice, bigotry, and failure to hold on to the truth. That's why Israel lost it. And the United States is not Israel, don't hear me saying that. We were never a covenant nation. But there was a rich Christian heritage. There was a rich rich reservoirs of faith as well. And just as Daniel and his three friends were being taken off into Babylon as a result of other people's sin and disobedience to God. That is really usually good for the Christian church to experience because the loss of power has always been the main way God's people are awakened. Church history shows that whenever Christianity wins in the power structure of a country and then is supported by that power structure, it becomes corrupted and idolatrous. Always look through church history, know it. When Christianity ascends and begins to infect politics, it gets corrupted and idolatrous. It happened for thousands and thousands of years in Europe. So only a loss of power, which comes as a natural judgment on our corruption, is, that's what chastens, humbles, and purifies the church. Nothing else seems to shake us out of our denial. So first, we must look at ourselves and be willing to admit that one of the reasons that we have an ascension of neo-paganism, of pluralism, is a result of the church's sin. We must be far harder on ourselves in gracious and humble repentance than we are on the unbelieving culture around us. We, we, We can't just throw bombs at the culture and say, Ah, they're so rotten, they're so terrible. Start with us. Start with humble, gracious repentance and be far harder on ourselves than we are on our culture. Because we have light. We have truth. We have the word of God. That was a major lesson for the exiles and it's a major lesson for us as well. So our first response should be repentance. We should be understanding toward people who do not believe in Christ because of the weakness of the church's testimony. Now, granted, the church will always be outnumbered. There will always be an increase in lawlessness. There will, and not all of that is to blame on the church. There's, we live in a fallen, fallen world, brothers and sisters. Not everything lays at the feet of the church for the blame in every, every societal ill. Don't hear me saying that. But what I'm saying is, if we were the city on the hill, we should have been. If we were the light that wasn't put under the basket, we let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. My guess is there'd be a little less darkness around us. A little less darkness. So, what we see here is that they were conscious of God. Daniel and his friends were conscious of God. Even in the midst of all their learning in Babylon, they never abandoned God. Number three, and finally, before we wrap things up here, third point. So, we've seen that to thrive in Babylon, we've got to be confident in God, confident in God's sovereignty. Conscious of God, living in his presence, hearing everything through the grid of his word, and accepting or rejecting it based upon that. Thirdly, be committed to God. Be committed to God. So there's confidence in God, there's consciousness of God, and there's commitment to God. Notice their commitment. Verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine that he drank. Therefore, we'll stop there questions always come up. Why didn't he eat the king's food? Was it something wrong about it? Something, I mean, was it sacrifice to idols or was it, we're not told. We're not told. I have no idea why he didn't do it. He just didn't do it. He felt in his conscience it would be wrong to engage in that practice. And I read, read lots of commentaries this week and they all got different ideas that aren't in the text. It's okay to posit your ideas, but we're not told. We're not told. It just says, when it came to this issue, it didn't, changing names, fine. Living in Babylon, fine. Learning the ways of Babylon, fine. Learning the literature culture, fine. Eating the food, nope. Not going to do it. They were resolving to eat only vegetables and water instead of the rich royal food and wine. Now, Now, he's not advocating a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle here. Okay? But I will tell you at least what I think is going on and why they chose to do this. So this is Mark. This is not Bible. Okay? I'm just going to give you my hunch here. My hunch is that they wanted to prove that God could be trusted. And they wanted to show that if they obey... I mean, the Babylonian people who are bringing them into captivity, the the chief eunuchs and all this, they're watching these guys. They know they came from Israel. And so they say, look, we don't want to eat this, all this. I mean, it looks great. It's delicious. I mean, I'm tempted right now. I mean, wine looks fantastic. But I just want to eat vegetables and water. Now, the reason that they say that, I think, is because they want them to have a publicly verifiable witness that God can be trusted. And watch what we do, okay? So the, so the, the guy initially responds. You see the chief of the eunuch says, whoa, 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 whoa. I might lose my head if I don't make you guys eat this stuff. Like, you need to do it. He told me to do it. And they're very civil. They're very diplomatic. They don't say, well, it's against our religion. We're not going to do it. They're not stupid Christians who say things like that. They're much more savvy and wise and careful. Notice their response. Verse 12. Let's just do a little test. Okay, can we just try it 10 days? Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and then let our appearance and the appearance of the other youth be compared. That's all I'm asking. And he says, okay, seems fair. So verse 14, he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine. They were to drink and gave them vegetables. God blessed them and gave them favor. Verse nine. He allowed them, which is kind of contrary to nature, to gain significant weight and to appear larger on a diet of vegetables and water, which, as you know, typically shrinks us down. So notice what they're doing here. This is so wise for us. This is so good for us. And it's such careful ways to live in our own cultural moment. Notice, they're deeply involved in the life and society of the culture yet they're keeping their conscience clear and undefiled before God, showing their distinctiveness. They're deeply engaged and deeply different. Deeply engaged and deeply different. This is the path to faithfulness. They don't prioritize their own pleasures. They don't even prioritize their own promotion. They prioritize their own purity. Now, let me talk to young people here for a minute, just for a second. Think about what they're doing here this is such a small thing, isn't it? I mean, it's food. It's food. And it's drink. Yet that's just the point, isn't it? It's in the small things, the small faithfulness, that great victories are won. This is where the decisions to live a holy life are made, not in the big things. Not in the big things. In the little details of life. Is where consecration and devotion to God shows up. It's when it's in the ordinary things. It's in the things where nobody's looking, and nobody's gonna make a fuss about it, nobody's gonna pat you on the back for it. So let me ask you a question. Young people have aspirations, and I and I and and I trust that I mean that's all good. A desire to change the world and have big dreams and make a difference and be involved in things that matter. Don't you wanna be that way? I mean, you poll millennials. That's what they want to be involved in. They want to be involved in something that counts, something that matters. They don't want to just be burning up time. They want to be using their lives in beneficial ways. They want their lives to count. They're dreaming big. That's right. You should. But the path to get there is not sexy or attractive or big. It's little. It's little things done over a long period of time. It's a long obedience in the same direction. In our youth, we can often be the most impatient and undisciplined, and that's when we're most tempted to put the little things aside, when it's the little things that make all the difference. It's prayer. It's Bible study. It's time with God. It's evangelism. It's mission. It's service. It's all the things you don't have time for because school is in session. And this is where your character is being shaped and your destiny is being sealed. Don't blow it in your youth. Remember the Creator in the days of your youth, Solomon says. Don't blow it. You're setting your life trajectory here. Now, praise God He steps into lives like mine that were ruined by sin. Not growing up in church. No Christian home. No family. No influence. And rescues me at 15. Because I guarantee you if He didn't, Things wouldn't be looking good for Mark Redfern right now. But he saves and he steps in and does it. But you have the privilege of in your youth knowing the Creator. Don't spoil it. Don't waste it. Go deep with God. God will make your life count. But this will not happen unless you determine to live for him in the little things now. And prioritize godliness and purity and resolve to be his. Now, we also have a mission application here, a way that we pursue our calling as the church. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you, right? We're to live such good lives among the among the pagans, 1 Peter 2, that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're we, we need to see that the main way, look at this, what's the main way that Daniel witnesses to this unbelieving chief of the eunuchs here? By preaching to him? No. By living a life that shows that trusting God leads to human flourishing. By showing a more attractive way, a better way to be human. Listen, brothers and sisters, the main way that we witness to people and they're important, is not through arguments. Arguments are important. There, there comes a place for them. But they need to see the fruit of God's wisdom in our lives first. The chief official learned respect for God of, the God of Israel because he saw the fruit of the Lord's service concretely in health, understanding, and character in these young men, which was not like the young men of Babylon, I can guarantee you. He said, what in the world? And then they go and appear before Nebuchadnezzar and they're ten times better than anything Babylon has to offer? See, Daniel's courage in taking a stand was his best witness. He took a stand. Young people, your best stand will be when you courageously walk with God in your school, among your peers. When, when your behavior is different. Not the fact that you say you go to church and grow up in a Christian home and like Jesus, but your behavior is different. That's when people will say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Dude, you better get in line or get out or they'll be drawn to you. Like, help me understand how this can be. Has anyone asked you, adult, child, about the hope that is in you recently? If they don't, could it be that it's because we look like we're hoping in the same things that everybody else is hoping in? Do our lives have anything different about them? Is our character and wisdom different from anyone else's? If we, if we have to tell someone who's an unbeliever why we are different, can we do so as winsomely and, and carefully and graciously as Daniel did? It's gracious. I love it. He's not rude. He's kind. He's supportive. He's not trying to be a rock in the eunuch's shoe. He's not trying to get him killed. He's doing everything he can to not get him killed. And this is is a beautiful picture of faithfulness, and we see what it means to be committed to God. 1 Peter 3.15 again says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness and respect. And that's what Daniel's doing. Daniel's given a reason for the hope that's in him, but he's doing it with gentleness and respect. He's not obnoxious, he's not braggadocious. He's doing it with genuine humility and modesty. And there is a huge application here for how we as the church engage our culture. We must not imbibe. Here's the here's the tension, okay? We must not imbibe the world's education and values while superficially and formally keeping God's rules. That is the privatization of faith, and it's the death of authentic Christianity. Nor should we keep ourselves in Christian ghettos disengaged from the culture, which is the separation of faith. Rather, we must be immersed and engaged in the culture, mastering its wisdom and remembering who we are as God's people. And can I just say, I want to brag on you for a moment. I hope you don't feel like this is beating up, because if there's anybody getting beat up in this sermon, it's me. I want to brag on you because I feel like the Fifth Street VBS this past week was the exact application of this. You were deeply immersed and engaged, such that Tim Hoke wanted to know the language. How can I connect with people? How can I make the gospel intelligible to them? You're deeply immersed, loving the community, serving the community, giving your time and energy and effort. And you're also deeply distinct. And I just want to tell you as a pastor how proud I am of you. How proud I am of you for being that way, for God enabling you to be that way. Romans 15, 18, right? Paul said, I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ accomplished through me. We all know where the glory goes. But I want to tell you that that is what we need to do and replicate. Being deeply engaged and deeply different. And that will cause people to have this sort of What is the reason for this? Why this? And then we have an opportunity to tell them about our Jesus. So, what does that look like practically before I wrap up here? Five quick things. We need wisdom. We need to know the culture we're critiquing. We see this in Daniel. He takes time to learn. I mean, he learns the Babylonian way of thinking. We need to respect the beliefs of others to be willing to understand them thoroughly and articulate them better than they could. So often Christians throw, I mean, they can represent people's views in entirely unfaithful ways, and that should not be named among us. We must articulate other people's beliefs, beliefs that we don't even enjoy, in ways that they would not only affirm, but say, you know what, he said that better than me. I appreciate you knowing that so well. We've got to know it inside out. We've got to seek to understand. And we need to show that the main promises of a secular Babylonian culture that it's making regarding meaning and satisfaction and freedom and identity that can't be fulfilled. And we see this at the end of Daniel 1. We see that trusting God and following God leads to prospering from God, leads to flourishing from God. So we need wisdom. We also need, number two, we need a counterculture. We need to be marked just a few ways here. We need to be marked by striking multi ethnicity. Striking multi ethnicity. Christianity is far and away the most ethically and culturally diverse religion in the world. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping our Jesus. That is an enormous credibility factor for Christianity. It's an enormous proof of its truthfulness, that it fits every culture, it fits every people. Not in their normal natural cultural fit, but it finds its way into the heart of people from all over the world. And so as the Western Church, we need to contritionally strive to reflect that heavenly vision. Number two, we should be pioneers of building bridges and loving people who are different from us. We see this again in Daniel and his three friends. They're building bridges. they're not burning bridges. The earliest Christians were viciously persecuted and put to death, but the church practiced forgiveness and non-retaliation and kindness. And nowhere in the West are we facing attacks such as this. We're not getting verbal. I mean, we might get verbal criticism. We might get some disdain. But if Christians would be more marked by being peacemakers instead of pouring scorn on their critics, we would make a bigger dent. We should be famous also for our generosity, for our care for the least of these, and our commitment to justice and love. And finally, we should be committed to the sanctity of life and being a sexual counterculture because we are going to be inheriting in the generations to come a lot of brokenness from our false cultural narrative about sexual freedom. It's not going to pay off. It's going to break people emotionally, spiritually, it's going to devastate families. And we have to be a refuge for those people, just as Jesus is a refuge for us. And we have, to, we have to not merely maintain a traditional sexual ethic among our own people, but we must learn to teach a better vision, communicate a better vision, and critique the false cultural narratives that are underlying our society's practice and view of sex. So we need faithful presence. We need to be Christians who integrate our faith into every area of our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces, wherever we go. We're seeking to live authentically as Christians. We're seeking to be bold, winsomely speaking the gospel. And you know what, brothers and sisters, and I'm just so concerned about this, is that we need to have deep, deep roots in the Christian faith. Deep roots. Shallow Christianity is not going to make it in our cultural moment. If we stand up and we just talk about Jesus saves, and that's all that matters, that's all we need to know. No, that's not all we need to know. We have got to be intelligent, winsome Christians. we got to be thoughtful. we gotta be, we got to be engaging and thinking and, and, and not just... we got to be listening and asking questions. You don't have to be a ferocious reader. You don't have to you know, put it, do everything, but we got to be thoughtful. you got to know your Bible inside and out. You've got to be able to be equipped. And you say, I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm still young. You know, I'm trying to work on this. Come be equipped. Let the church equip you. We want to teach you. We want to help you. We want to resource you. We want to bless you. We want to offer classes to equip you. And take advantage of those because we're going to need a deep-rooted, deeply spiritual, spiritually formed people in our day and age. And the Lord will do that. He will strengthen us. But we have to play our part too and pursue Him and grow in our knowledge of the Lord. But more than anything, you know what, and with this I close, we need Christ. We need Christ, don't we? It doesn't depend on us. It's not up to us. It's more important for us to remember, you know what? Guess who the hero of Daniel chapter 1 is? Daniel? No, God. God is the hero of Daniel chapter 1. While Daniel's courage and faithfulness are commendable, he's not the point. God is the hero. He's the one who saves weak and sinful people, who preserves young men from impurity and old men from lions, who answers prayers and interprets dreams, who humbles the proud and exalts the humble, who vindicates the faithful and vanquishes the unfaithful, who rescues his covenant-forsaking people and returns them to the land of the covenant and promises a glorious future to those with a sinful and soiled past. God is the hero. Jesus is the greater Daniel who left heaven and came into exile. He left the promised land and he came to earth, Babylon, to live among us, confident in God that he was accomplishing the will of the Father and living a perfectly pure, devoted, consecrated, conscious, committed life to God for us so that we could be saved, redeemed, and rescued. Dying on the cross for our sins, rising victorious from the dead, he identified with us as sinners. He drew near to us, and yet he remained separate in his holiness, and he did this so he could save us from our sins. Jesus is the greater Daniel. Don't read this and think first and and foremost of you or Daniel. Think first and foremost of Jesus. Leaving, his prom- leaving the promised land, coming into exile, living a righteous life, ascending back to heaven after God vindicated him. And he's ten times better than any other Savior we might hold on to. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together in your word to reflect on Daniel chapter 1. We thank you for your grace at work in the life of Daniel. We thank you for how that pictures for us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his person and his work. And we pray that joined to him in union with him by faith in him that we would be formed into these sorts of people, deeply engaged, deeply different for the sake of our city, for the sake of our nation, for the sake of your global glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.